You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. To find out more about the journal and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook and Twitter pages. Welcome to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast series. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Allison Eubanks and Dr. Lisa Thiel to review their recent work, Risk Assessment and Treatment Guide for Obstetric Thromboprophylaxis, Comprehensive Review of Current Guidelines. Dr. Eubanks and Dr. Thiel represent the Department of OBGYN at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. Venous thromboembolism is a major source of maternal morbidity and mortality in pregnancy, occurring four to five times more compared to women outside of pregnancy. Multiple societies have worked to develop guidelines to reduce the risk of VTE in pregnancy. In this study, the author sought to review the current available literature and guidelines to develop a single risk assessment and treatment guide to streamline the approach to VTE prevention in pregnancy. Using PubMed and Medline searches from 1980 to 2017, the authors identified the available published guidelines. To establish the summary guidelines, recommendations utilized in at least three sources were included in the final guide. Guidelines from major obstetric and gynecology organizations, such as the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada, and the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecology were also included. The authors then constructed a single guide describing the evaluation and treatment for VTE prevention, as well as consolidated dosing guidelines for VTE prophylaxis. Using the absolute risk of VTE in pregnancy and the odds ratios of individual risk factors, the authors stratified patients into low, intermediate, and high-risk groups, both for antepartum and postpartum periods. Individual summary risk greater than 1% would warrant VTE prophylaxis. Finally, the authors describe the approach to unique cases requiring thromboprophylaxis in pregnancy. The authors thus propose a clinically applicable guide to identify at-risk patients for VTE with an evidence-based approach to management. Dr. Eubanks, Dr. Thiel, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Can you just sort of explain a little bit what the motivation for doing this project was for your group? Yeah, sure. So about six or seven years ago, when I was in fellowship and then finishing fellowship and working at Walter Reed, we noticed quite often that we would have consults, um, either preconception consults or consults for patients that are actively pregnant that have a lot of risk factors for potential clotting in pregnancy. Pregnancy in and of itself is an increased risk factor four to five times that outside of pregnancy for a clot in the leg, chest, heart, or brain. And a lot of the journals that have been produced up until this point, all have a lot of recommendations and pull a lot of other resources and give a, some guidelines, but some would focus mostly on while someone's pregnant.
pregnant or before pregnancy or only after pregnancy. And all of those recommendations kind of weren't pulled together in one place. And so I made a preliminary chart about six years ago um, trying to do that. Um, but Dr. Eubanks and I spent quite a bit of time creating a really comprehensive kind of roadmap and tool that makes it very, very easy for any OB provider to take a peek at some definitions of higher risk pregnancies, the workup for a potential pregnancy that might be at a higher risk, what kind of treatment patients that might fit a treatment category, both while pregnant and postpartum, dosage guidelines, and then some unique cases, all in one handout tool that makes it really, really easy for providers to have a go-to resource as opposed to having to pour through dozens and dozens of journals to come up with the consensus of, of where we want to be. So you mentioned, of course, that VTE is much more common in pregnant patients and that trying to address this is important. What are some of the implications for venous thromboembolism in the pregnant women that make this so important that we have this guideline? Yeah, so the prevalence is about 1 to 2 per 1,000 pregnancies and accounts for approximately 9 to 10% of maternal deaths in the U.S. Um, We're really trying to crank down on maternal deaths and try to find comprehensive ways and standardization of care to really try to make a huge impact on our populations. And so the U.S. reported that as much as 30% of deaths worldwide, not including the United States, were attributed to, to VTE. So we found this to be a very critical area in medicine where we can make a large impact. So it certainly sounds like this is common enough problem and can have significant maternal morbidity that some type of standardization or at least guidelines so that we have some universal approach to to this issue is definitely needed. Yeah, to make it consistent throughout the country for prophylaxis treatment, who to treat and when to treat for sure. So then I know you sat about to kind of figure out what's out there, what all the different guidelines and recommendations from all the societies are. So you sort of poured through the literature. How did you determine what studies to use in helping to develop this tool? We initially just found everything that would even remotely apply to this paper. And then once we did that, we collected all of those articles and we eliminated any paper that kind of just was a review of an article that we already selected. We eliminated any case reports or expert-only opinion papers. So we tried to stick with, you know, very research-based papers. That kind of eliminated us actually down to 10 studies that were either referenced in other papers or got rid of all the case reports. And once we did that, we went through each of those studies and we divided the groups up into high, intermediate, and low-risk categories based on absolute risks and odd ratios of those risk factors. And then using certain guidelines for absolute risk and odd ratios, we put every risk factor into the high, intermediate, and low risk categories. Can you talk a little bit about how you determined those low, intermediate, high risks, how you created those groupings? Sure. So, like I said, we use uh, absolute risk and odds ratios for those. We found that an absolute risk of less than 1% for each risk factor was a low-risk category. Greater than 1% but less than 5% were intermediate, and then over 5% was an absolute risk, was classified as a high-risk category. You know, the papers that we reviewed all had each of these risk factors uh, laid out in their absolute risk or odds ratio for a VTE. And then using those, we categorize each one of them into our chart. 
So then you had to have a level, a baseline level, I guess, that you felt was a significant enough increased risk of VTE in pregnancy that would warrant some type of prophylaxis. How did you determine that sort of baseline risk or level? A lot of those levels also were determined in those prior 10 studies based on some data and retrospective data. So they were able to delineate the absolute risk or the odds ratio from retrospective pieces. So there are no prospective trials actually on this topic. So that's what makes some of these risk categories really important and to have kind of the national and international support that are out there in other journals to give us those risk stratifications so that moving forward, we can do prospective trials specifically using this chart and using these risk categories and those who are prophylaxed and treated or treated with therapeutic medication to see moving forward how effective all of these recommendations end up to be. That's the one area of our, of our science and obstetrics that we do not have significant prospective data on venous thromboembolism, prophylaxis, and treatment. So that's what we're trying to create a very novel approach to that with this risk assessment. And in the chart that we created, we color-coded it as well and delineated these high-risk, intermediate-risk, and low-risk categories. And they end up having a point system um, that will determine whether or not they may or may not need prophylaxis or treatment that you can directly place into an EMR that such as EPIC or whatever system your hospital may use that makes a really easy algorithm to determine which patients fall into these risk assessment categories. And then we can see prospectively if we've made an impact on the VTE rates within different hospital systems. And hopefully we've already started to do that in certain hospitals throughout the country, and hopefully we can do a large multi-center trial on that. So you divided patients into this low, intermediate, and high-risk category based on what their absolute risk is. And when that absolute risk wasn't there, it was based on odds ratio data. Mm -hmm. um, and then further, your low-risk categories, there's obviously some that have such low risk that alone they don't warrant prophylaxis. So then you created another scoring system where you have added several risk factors together that, to then warrant somebody that would need prophylaxis? We used the 10 studies that we selected, and we reviewed all of the research and recommendations in each of those studies. And we pulled out every risk factor that each of those studies listed. Any risk factors that were found to be less than 1% of an absolute risk of a venous um, embolism were placed in a low risk category. Any risk factors that were found to be between an absolute risk of 1% to 5% were placed in the intermediate risk category, and any risk factors that by themselves were over 5% absolute risk of embolism were placed in the high-risk category. Three of the low-risk factors, both in the antepartum and postpartum period, actually add up to a risk of about 1% to 5%, meaning that that patient now moves from low risk to intermediate risk, which is why in our low-risk category, we have to add up those factors if patients have multiple factors. Once in the intermediate risk category, that patient should be treated like the intermediate risk category. If the patient has four low-risk factors, it actually bumps their absolute risk up to above 5%, which is a high-risk category. So that patient, again, will be treated like a high-risk patient. 
in the high-risk category, so any patient that has a factor that has an absolute risk of embolism above 5%, those patients are also delineated between prophylactic and therapeutic dose. So a category of patients that has an absolute risk above 5% but should just be treated with a prophylactic dose based on the evidence. And there's also a category of patients that need a therapeutic dose throughout pregnancy or six weeks postpartum because their absolute risk is well above 5%. If you look at the low-risk categories in the chart, three of those factors, the absolute risk of those three factors, actually adds up to between 1% and 5%, making them an intermediate risk category so that patients should be treated as an intermediate risk and get prophylactic dosing starting at 28 weeks gestation. And then, you know, again, if they meet that intermediate risk again postpartum through 10 days postpartum. And the same applies if they have four factors. That actually moves their absolute risk of embolism above 5%, which we feel is a high-risk category and based on the research that we've done, and then again should be treated throughout pregnancy and then a total of six weeks postpartum. How would you recommend the practicing OB provider use these guidelines and use this chart you've created? I think, again, the goal of this chart was so that providers, every level of obstetric provider, doesn't have to go back through and redo all those calculations that we had to do to get an absolute risk score. So if you if you have a patient with um, any one of these factors, it was a gamble as to which of those 10 papers you would find that factor in. And then also to find what is their absolute risk and how do you treat that absolute risk. So we found that in our facility, everybody was just referring to maternal fetal medicine because it was just too hard to do all that calculation anyway. And so in that treatment chart, we've done all that calculation for you and just given you the guidelines based on these 10 recommendations. So, for example, a cesarean delivery in and of itself is a low-risk factor for venous thromboembolism, compression stockings, and, and increasing mobilization after delivery is definitely warranted and advised. But then if you add other risk factors into that, then we throw them into a different intermediate risk category and do recommend prophylaxis. So, for example, if their BMI is over 40, they have a cesarean delivery and they have a postpartum hemorrhage of greater than a liter of blood loss those three factors then do put them into that 1% to 5% risk category of absolute risk of having um, a DVT or a PE. So then we do recommend prophylactic dosing, and we have a chart as well to give you how much um, Lovenox or how much heparin we would recommend based on their weight. So for someone who may have a, a BMI with their weight over 90 kilograms, that would be 40 milligrams of Lovenox twice a day for 10 days. So they may have some doses in the hospital and then go home with it for about a week. If they, for example, had those three plus they were a smoker or advanced maternal age or they had preeclampsia or twins or some other category that put them into four factors or more, we would actually recommend prophylaxis, for example, for six weeks total postpartum where their risk of having a PE or having a DVT or something that could really affect their postpartum care would need a longer prophylactic dose. So what are some of the potential future areas of study or utilizations for um, these guidelines? We are hoping to also maybe do an app. You can calculate the risk and calculate the dosing and everything really quickly on an app. And again, we're working with Dr. Abu Hamid and other teams to create a large multi-center trial of a prior VTE risk and then prospective treatment guidelines and how well this is working in the population. 
this study was looking actually at studies from as early as 1980 all the way up to 2017. So it's a very comprehensive investigation to all of the studies on this topic. And, you know, as any OB provider knows, it can be very confusing sometimes to go through all of this data. And so having this this resource, most OB providers that see or take a peek at it or look at it are very, very excited to have one tool, one resource. And then if there is any further, you know, kind of question beyond that, and there's always going to be a gray zone, of course. So using clinical judgment on top of some of these guidelines can be very helpful. The other piece of this that we wanted to add was Dr. Dalton had done a lot of work in this area as well through ACOG. And there are some, you know, PowerPoint slides and things that help kind of pull a lot of this together as well on their website. And then also the California Consortium just came out with recommendations in the same topic, and we went through their recommendations and protocols and, and paperwork as well, and this all it was in alignment with their recommendations, so that's really wonderful to have all of that in one space. Um, and so we're really excited about this tool. Our uh, third co-author, Dr. Shad Deering, who also works with us at Walter Reed National Mil Military Medical Center, he helped us quite a bit creating the actual chart, the color flow, making sure that it was easy to read. He's been promoting this as well through SMFM and through other national platforms, and we wanted to give him uh, some thanks and make sure uh, we knew that he was very much appreciated for all of his help on this paper. Wonderful. Have you at all reached out to EMR groups uh, to see if this can be incorporated into sort of a decision tool kind of in order sets or in admissions for patients, obstetric patients? So I'm actually converted from the active duty military side to the civilian side of medicine, and I'm um, in Grand Rapids, Michigan right now, where we do about eight to 10,000 deliveries throughout our region. And we are actively placing this uh, tool in our EPIC system to help providers and help the nurses input data and then help providers see the risk assessment and be able to automatically order uh, medications as well. And Dr. Eubanks is doing the same through the military side of things to help create not only an easy-to-use format through an EMR, but also to make sure that we're able to track use and efficacy. And then also Dr. Abuhamid is also doing the same thing through his large facility, and I know a lot of others are going to be doing the same thing, where it's already employed in some epic centers as well. This seems like there may be great opportunities for a quality project to determine if this helps with compliance for um, mm -hmm. VTE prophylaxis in the pregnant patients. That's a, a challenge, as you know, for most of our antepartum and postpartum units. Absolutely, absolutely. And then this having these risk factors and you can count them up and it's it's something that's very measurable is also really nice for the computer programmers through any EMR system because they're able to say, okay, if this, then that, and then they're able to make a really easy response as opposed to all of it having to come from the OB providers as well. So a lot of the data can already be input and it can be an automatic part for any hospital system to know patients that are at risk and what to do, and especially to know exactly what treatment modality to use. Wonderful. So it sounds like we are incorporating this into EMRs. We're putting this out to obstetric programs to use as sort of an outside the EMR guide, and then you are investigating other areas of research using this guideline to address the problem of VTE in pregnancy. Do you have any other future investigations planned or studied or things you want to do with this set of guidelines? 
I think the biggest next step is to get a prospective analysis of this and to confirm that this is making a difference. And so I think, you know, getting this into the EMR and then also evaluating the, to see these big medical centers with Dr. Abuhamid and Dr. Thiel, are we making a difference? Are we uh, decreasing the risk of VTE without increasing the risk of hemorrhage? Because that's one of the fears is that we put too many people on. Uh, thromboprophylaxis. And so I think the next step is to ensure that these are the appropriate guidelines based on the research we have by doing a prospective study on both bleeding risk and embolism risk. Have you reached out to other care providers in, for the obstetric patient in looking at these guidelines? One I can think of specifically would be the obstetric anesthesia groups that may have some additional interest or opinions in how to approach VTE prophylaxis. Yeah, the Society for Obstetric Anesthesia recently published a paper in March of 2018 that went through different guidelines on what medications a patient may be on for prophylaxis and treatment and when to consider regional anesthesia, general anesthesia. And for the most part, since, again, those studies are very hard to do, <laughs> we do recommend that someone on Lovenox refrain from regional anesthesia for 12 to 24 hours and heparin for 6 to 12 hours. And it definitely depends on the anesthesia team and their comfort level with the level of prophylaxis versus treatment dosing. But they do have a great guideline and consensus statement discussing some of those issues. And we meet routinely with our OB anesthesia colleagues to really formulate plans and make sure we're all on the same page. So, of course, not everybody is ever going to fit in every single risk stratification criteria. Some patients that are a little more confusing are patients who have family members who've had prior venous thromboembolism, and then there are some unique cases that arise in pregnancy. How did you guys address some of these issues in creating your guidelines? Covering the last couple boxes on the chart might be helpful. The yellow box at the very top can actually help define what is a high-risk and low-risk thrombophilia. I think, you know, there's a lot of confusion when patients say, oh, I'm a factor five light in heterozygote. What does that mean? Does this patient need to be screened for anything? Do they need treatment? Our goal here was to eliminate that confusion in that first yellow box. And then the next box is a workup box. So that's a box for when do you even test a patient for a high or low risk thrombophilia? And what factors and acquired thrombophilias are you testing for in those patients that are appropriate? So I know, again, you know, you have a patient with a couple miscarriages after 10 weeks and people are unsure whether to test for an acquired thrombophilia, a full thrombophilia panel. And so again, we've used those selected studies to help us outline which panels should be tested in which patients. And then finally, the blue box at the very bottom is the unique cases. So these are patients that don't fall into any of the categories or the risk stratifications because their cases are so unique. So things like OHSS in a REI patient or a cardiomyopathy patient. And so that blue box at the bottom can help you with those more complicated patients. Dr. Eubanks, Dr. Thiel, thank you very much for joining us today. We commend you on this paper. For the audience, this paper will be published and accessible to even those who do not have a subscription to American Journal of Perinatology. Of course, we would recommend everybody get a subscription to AJP. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to more of your insight on this very important topic. Thank you. Thank you for having us.
Thank you so much for having us. We're very excited about it all. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook and Twitter pages. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. And join us next time when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology.